Well, thank you very much for that uh, beautiful reading uh, from Scripture, and it's lovely to be able to be here with you this morning. Um, I'll do my very best uh, to speak softly and gently so you can catch up on the sleep you missed during the week, and uh, we'll make sure someone wakes you um, before the next group come in. Um, otherwise, you might find yourself here for a second service. It's, um, it is a delight to be back here and especially to see how uh, this church has grown and multiplied across different sites right across the city. Wonderful to reconnect with Tom and also uh, with my good friends Peggy and Nabil, who I haven't seen uh, in many years. Uh, but it's interesting with some people, you feel like you put a conversation on pause and then many years later, it's just like you just hit play again and you simply picked up where you dropped off. So it's really a, it's a delight and a pleasure for me to be here with you. Now this uh, question on... Um, is Christianity arrogant, is actually a very uh, important one. Um, the reason why it is very important is that both within the church and without the church, those who would call themselves Christians, those who would say they are definitely not Christians, may even prefer to use a term like anti-Christian or anything like that, would see the quality of arrogance as being something terribly negative. And so if to become a Christian entails embracing arrogance as a virtue, or as a quality that should be celebrated, at that point, both the God, nature of God and the nature of the Christian faith become morally abhorrent in many people's hearts and minds. And it is a confusing thing at times because people have sometimes looked at the church and felt, well, no, I can feel like there's an awful lot of arrogance there, or even sometimes looked at the nature of the Christian faith and said, well, doesn't it, the kinds of things it offers, isn't it done in a very arrogant way? Doesn't it somehow therefore make it inherently distasteful? Now, the reason why these moral questions are so important is that we cannot put our trust in someone who we think is not reliable. You cannot trust that which you are sure is inherently untrustworthy or even inherently unworthy of being trusted or esteemed or worshipped. It's very interesting. I was uh, reading in my um, um, Bible reading plan, I'm going through the Bible in a year, just um, uh, yesterday, the psalm I was in was saying, ascribe greatness to God. And, you know, there is... That word ascribe, we don't use it a lot anymore. It sounds like, well, what we need to do is give something to God that he doesn't have. Does that make sense? So we give it to him. So we will make God great. And we ascribe glory to God. He's not very glorious, but we're going to make him glorious by talking about him that way. Um, if it helps you get a mental picture, think of the candidate you would least like to win the presidential nomination, the one you least like, and then imagine one of their fans ascribing greatness to them, ascribing glory. Does that make sense? You know they don't have it. They're trying to give it something that isn't there. Now, here we have to understand very carefully. When we describe something, we use our words to give a detailed explanation or picture of what it is. When you ascribe something, what that word means is you recognize what is due to something. You recognize its source. So when you ascribe greatness to God or you ascribe glory to God or you ascribe beauty to God, it's not that you're giving God something. What you're doing is you're recognizing the source of that very quality. You are recognizing where it is due. And if arrogance is something which is inherently wedded within Christian conviction, within the Christian life, or even within the nature of God himself, how in any sense can we ascribe all those other qualities to him, because surely this one would go against everything else. So this question is a very legitimate one and also a very, very real one. I was with um, uh, Bob Grinnell, who's our director of development. Um, he's the only guy in the audience wearing a bow tie, so he's very easy to spot. A couple of years ago with one of my colleagues, Michelle Tepper, we were speaking at a very well-known university, very, um, uh, you know, uh, one of the um, uh, sort of leading universities in this country. I'll just, for the sake of this story, just uh, give it a little degree of anonymity. 
And we were in the main auditorium on campus. It was packed. There were people standing at the back, down the aisles. And we were dealing with a very similar question as to this one. And the organizers came to me and they said, look, the head of the Secular Society, the head of the Humanist Society, and the head of the Richard Dawkins Free Thinking Group want to come tonight. And what they want to do is they want to be able to ask you questions afterwards. And I said, well, I'm doing a time of general Q&A. They can come to the mic. And they said, that's not what they want. They want to be able to ask most of the questions. So what I said, well, look, here's what we'll do. Why don't I take one question from those three, and then I'll take one from the audience, and one from them, and one from the audience. We'll go backwards and forwards. So we, we um, addressed the question from 7 to 8 p.m. Then from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m., we did general Q&A. And before we'd started the evening, the, the, um, this group of three people had come to me and said, is there any way, once this is finished, we can go out to have a, a drink together, we'd like to continue the discussion with you. And I said, that's fine. I said, look, once I finish the, the public Q&A at 9, I said, I'll be at the front. I'll just talk to anyone else who wants to speak with me. And then once that's finished, we can go out. Well, I finished speaking with people at n midnight. That was the last person to leave. So I went over to them. They were still waiting very patiently. And I said, look, I, I guess everywhere's closed now. So I guess you know, we can't go anywhere. But you know, what do you want to do? And they said, well, if you're up for it, um, is there any way that we could talk here? So I sat down with Bob and Michelle, and we sat down in a big circle, and I'll never forget the opening words uh, to me from one of these leading atheists. He looked at me, and he said, you, talking to me, he said, must be what is called a liberal Christian. I said, now that's interesting. Why do you, why do you say that? I said, most people who would support me or support our ministry, RZIM, would think of, us, think of themselves and us as being very conservative. He said, well, that may be the case, but you are a liberal. And I said, well, I believe in the deity of Christ, the Trinity, inerrancy of Scripture, the physical resurrection, the second coming. I said, what do you want to pick me up on? <laughs> he, said, he said, no, 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 you must be a liberal Christian. You like people. <laughs> then he said something even more interesting. He then said, I don't think you presented the gospel fairly today. And I said to him, well, I explained it as best as I can, that <laughs> human beings are unable to save themselves. We are lost in our sin. But God has stepped down into this world. He incarnated Himself. He took His sin onto Himself. He paid for it on the cross. He rose again from the dead, and He offers us salvation as a gift. I said, we call it grace. He said, and that is an inherently humbling thing. And there was another guy there who was an ex-believer, uh, 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 ex and he said, actually, no, that is the gospel. I have heard it once before. So then this leading atheist then just said, well, if that's the gospel, I have one thing I need to say to you. If that is the actual gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to go to every city in this country and you need to preach it as loudly as you can and I'll start with the church. Now, is that an interesting response to dealing with this kind of issue? So what I'm going to try and do this morning, especially as we look here at this passage, is um, I'm going to try and come at it in two different ways in the morning services. So if you do are in small groups, you're going to talk about this afterwards. You're going to hear two very substantially different talks, but with the same title, the same theme. So you, there is a commonality to it. That makes sense. So we'll come to the same conclusion, but we'll just come at it in different ways. But this question is, is vitally important, and it's a live one. And most of you know, if you were to go to some of your neighbors who you know aren't Christians and knock on their door and think, what do you think about Christians? At some point, this word arrogant is going to come up. So how do we understand it? How do we, how do we engage now, let me just say just a couple of things, um, introductory remarks at this point. First of all, we have to understand something about the nature of truth. Now, the way that, reason that some people think the Christian faith must be inherently arrogant is because it claims to be true, and anything that claims to be true, therefore, must be arrogant. 
because it excludes something else. I can remember when I first became a Christian, um, I'd been a Christian for a day, um, I met the leader of the Baha'i faith in the country I was in, um, and I shared with them that I'd become a Christian the day before, and they smiled and they said, that's wonderful, I'm Baha'i. I said, well, what, what does that mean? He says, well, Baha'i, we believe that everyone believes the truth, and everyone is going to heaven. So I said, well, what would you make of someone who said that, that everyone doesn't have the truth and not everyone's going to heaven? He said, well, no, that, that, we would say that was wrong. I said, so you're excluding that then? He said, no, 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 no. He says, we want to include everything. He says, that's what we do. We are all embracing, we include everything. I said, well, what about the idea that truth excludes some people? He said, no, 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 that's definitely wrong. I said, you're excluding it again. Now, it was my very first encounter as a one-day-old Christian with trying to grapple, grapple with this. Now, what's going on here is that we normally have a philosophical picture which is deeply confusing. I remember speaking to a group of um, uh, business guys in London um, many years ago now, and at the end of it, one of them said to me, you know, gave me a very classic picture where he said, look, you know, you're a Christian, and you're on the Christian path up to the top of a religious mountain, and there are all these other paths, and they all go to the top. You know, why is it that you're so hung up on the fact that there's only one? And I said, look, have you ever climbed to the top of a mountain? He was a very fit-looking guy, much fitter looking than me. He said, I have. I said, when you're standing on top of a mountain, can you see where all paths from the base lead? And he paused and he said, no. I said, where do you need to be standing to see that all paths from the base of a mountain lead to the top? And he said, up here. I said, okay, who has that view? And he paused and said, God. I said, my question to you is, who are you claiming to be when you tell me all paths lead from the base to the top? And he smiled at this point, and I said, look, I'm just trying to figure out which one of us is God in this room, because <laughs> if it is definitely you, then I've got questions that I want to ask. Now, the picture, do you see, the picture sounds very humbling, but actually the claim is very arrogant, which is normally not what the speaker intends at all. What the speaker is intending is to bring a sort of thinking, I'm injecting a sense of humility into this conversation. Actually, what's happening is that they're making a claim which is, which is deeply troubling. Now, it is just the way truth works. If I were to say to you today, look, all paths lead to God, and when I say that, I'm saying that those who believe only some paths lead to God or only one path leads to God are wrong. Now, if I were to say to you, look, only some paths lead to God, because I'm not so sure Adolf Hitler had such a great plan of salvation. So if I say, look, only some of these paths lead to God, I'm saying, when I say that, that those who think all paths lead to God or only one path leads to God are wrong. Whenever you stake a claim to truth, you're going to exclude someone somewhere. That's the way truth works. Now, what that means, therefore, is that you can make a claim to truth and you can do it in a humble way and you can make a claim to truth and you can do it in an arrogant way. But the nature of truth and the emotional quality of arrogance are two things which are not necessarily connected. I find it fascinating that Jesus Christ was described as a human being full of grace and truth. When you describe someone as being graceful, you're saying that there is a beauty to their physical movement. You may have noticed that as I walked up onto this platform. When you... When you say that someone is gracious, you are saying that there is a beauty to their inner moral movement. Jesus Christ was full of truth and grace. There was a beauty to the inner working of his lives that even his critics could see. Truth and grace do not need to exclude each other. They must run together. Now, let's just look, therefore, at this passage, because this passage is actually fascinating as it, how, how it addresses this question. Now, Jesus addresses this question, and we know who he's speaking to, to those who were confident in their own righteousness, to people who thought that they were good. 
He then shared the following story. Now, the word self-righteous, again, is one that's become slightly confused in our culture. It's a shame because we often think now of self-righteousness as an attitude, and it can be an attitude, but as it's, there are two different ways it can be used. When you think about the idea of being righteous, about being good, about being made good, and it's interesting how that word completely fell out of use until, have any of you seen the movie, um, oh gosh, you can tell I'm suffering from jet lag. Um, uh, uh, what's the, um, the, the spy movie with that young guy, who ne- that guy who never seems to get old and he falls, Mission Impossible. Anyone see the first Mission Impossible movie? <laughs> I got to talk myself back into it. Um, do you remember that? And there's one of the guys there, he's like a computer expert, he's got into trouble with the CIA, he's been thrown out, and they say, what do you want? He says, I want to be made righteous again. I was thinking, wow, I haven't heard that word in a movie in a very, very long time. And the idea of being made righteous sort of somehow came back into some parlance and some, in some parts of the culture. But when you've been talking about being made righteous, being made good, being put in back into a good position, there are only two ways it can happen. Either you do it yourself. That make sense? You are self-righteous. Through your own effort, through your own actions, through your own lifestyle, through your own way of living, you make yourself right, right? Self-righteous. Or someone else makes you righteous. Does that make sense? They put you back into that place. They put you back into a place where you are now right and good and, you know, and so on. And it actually comes through forgiveness. It doesn't come through anything you've necessarily earned. It comes through something that you've been given. And those are the only two chop- options. Now, what that means is that you can be humbly self-righteous. Does that make sense? Have an attitude of humility while saying, hey, I did this myself. Okay? Or you can be you know, arrogantly made righteous by someone else. Hey, look what happened to me, and aren't I brilliant? But again, we have to sort out, separate out slightly both the attitude of the heart, does that make sense, and the processes which are involved. They can run together, but they don't have to necessarily run together. So Jesus is speaking to those who feel that they can make themselves right before God, that it is possible for them, through their own effort and action, to say, look at me, God, I'm great. I know you can't wait for me to get to heaven. Once I get there, I'll share my wisdom with you. So he's speaking to the self-righteous. Now this becomes very uncomfortable, this story. The trouble is, is if you have any kind of Christian background, whenever you hear these stories, we hear the word Pharisee, Sadducee, and we think, oh, those are the bad people. And then we hear tax collector, sinner, prostitute, and we think, oh, those are the good people. (laughs) If the Pharisees were alive today, do you know where they would be? They'd be leading our churches. They'd be elders. They would be the most respected people in our communities. They would be the people we felt we could trust. And I'm very sorry if you work for the IRS, but have you ever noticed when you get invited to a dinner party, people don't talk about their business life or you know, where they've been on holiday and stuff like that? Have you noticed? It's very awkward, isn't it? Jesus tells a story which is distinctly uncomfortable. He starts off by saying, Two men went to the temple to pray. Now, we have an issue here. In all forms of Aramaic language, even in modern Arabic today, in all the Semitic languages, when you say, I'm going to the temple to pray, you're basically saying one of two things. You're either saying, hey, I'm going to go to an empty church building. Imagine the doors here were open. I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to go and pray, just on my own. That's what it can mean. Or it can mean, I'm going to a worship service like this. You're all here in this room. That makes sense? Because it's the same word. There's only one word available. It's the context that allows you to say, hey, are you going to worship and be part of a, are you going to pray while you're in church with everybody else around you? Or are you just simply going on your own? 
Now, we sometimes approach this and assume that we're talking about individual prayer. Now, that's highly unlikely. The reason it's very highly unlikely is because of the second prayer. The prayer of the tax collector actually make, means that it actually rules out the first possibility, just simply going on your own. They go up to the temple together, they leave the temple together, and they pray. So what's going on? Well, every day at sunrise and sunset in the temple, there is a service where a lamb is sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And after the priest has finished his sacrifice, he turns around and he walks literally out through the back. He goes behind a curtain and he's now out of view. No one can see him and he offers up prayers for the nation. And at that point, no one can see anything. They're just looking at an empty platform. So that's the point where everybody offers, offers up their own prayers. Does that make sense? There's nothing else to do. That's why in, Za in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah, when it's his turn to do this, it says in Luke 1.14, when Zechariah went inside to burn incense, everyone else stood outside praying. Well, of course, that's what they do. You know, that's what you do. Everybody knows it. So it's the prayers here which become very, very informative. Two men go to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, a good guy. One's a tax collector. He's the enemy collaborator. Again, if it helps you, think about it. Imagine the party you don't want to win the election, your next-door neighbor who goes around raising funds for these people. Okay? Right? Now, imagine that. Let's make it worse. Let's suppose in the election in the United, Kingdom, in, in the United States is between an American candidate and the Queen. And the British Army are poised, you know, have put garrisons all across the United States, you know, and your, fund, your American citizens living next to you raising money to get the British person re-elected in. Does that make sense? That's how the tax collector would have been seen. An en they are an enemy of the rest of the nation. So the Pharisee stands by himself, largely because he doesn't want to be contaminated by anyone else. And it's interesting in the, in the, in the language here, there's a slight ambiguity. It could be literally he prays to himself or he prays about himself, which is very, very interesting. I mean, literally he is praying about himself. And he stands before God, and it has the mark of humility. God, I thank you that you made me like I am, is basically what he's saying, and there's some truth in that. But just notice how he phrases it. He's basically saying, God, thank you I'm not like all these other people. I'm just that little bit better than them. I know you love everyone, but clearly you love me that little bit more. And then he begins to boast about his lifestyle and about how he goes beyond what is required of him. And it's very interesting he focuses on giving. He basically says, I know, God, that you want me to give to you, and actually I give more to you than you've asked for. So, way to me. That's great. Now, this prayer is so depressing, I'm not going to say very much about it. It's a passage I don't like to exegete, so we're going to just move on. But you get what's happening. He moves from his giving into his fasting, into his spiritual life. Hey, I'm even more spiritual than everyone else, so I give more. I'm more spiritual than everyone else. I'm great, but okay, you made me better than everyone else. But, and I want to thank you for that today. Now, the tax collector stands a long way off. He's at the back. He's not near the front. And something happens which is highly unusual. Now, when you pray in a Jewish temple, you stand, you hold out your hands, and you look up to heaven. Okay? That's where he lives. In Anglican churches in England, you kneel and you look down into the center of the earth where someone else lives and you pray that way. <laughs> Every group has a different, has a different uh, you know, way. This is the attitude you adopt. 
So that's how you pray. But this guy won't look up. He feels so ashamed of the situation he's in, he'll only look down. And then we read something very unusual. He beats his chest. Now, this is something in biblical times and in the New Testament only women do. It's a sign of deep remorse. Okay, at funerals, at deaths, men are meant to pluck the beard, tear their garment. Women are meant to, they wail and they beat their chest. And you can even see this in some Middle Eastern cultures today. And you get this sort of reverberating noise. That makes sense, you know, as you wail and also you beat your chest. And it creates this noise. There's only one other instance that I'm aware of in, 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 in antiquity where we have a record of a man beating his chest rather than a woman, and it's when it's at the foot of the cross. As one of the disciples who loved Jesus so much is so distraught by what he says, he, he beats his chest. But the picture that is given, therefore, is someone who is utterly distraught. Now, the key thing that's happening here happens in the context of the prayer, however. Now, I said that this, these, this is probably happening in the context of a worship service, and I said we can be sure of that. Why? Well, it is because of the prayer that this tax collector prays. As he beats his chest and stands a long way off, we normally have it translated, God have mercy to me, a sinner. Now, the Greek word for mercy that you'll expect to see when it was used in Luke, is a laison. Now, if any of you have been to a traditional church or have a traditional track, um, church background, you may be familiar with something called the kire eleison. Any of you know what that is? Well, but let's have a show of hands. Who knows what the kire eleison is? Oh, that's a few of you. Okay. So for those of you who aren't cultured, let me explain what that means. Kire eleison, Christe eleison, is a form of liturgical word which literally means, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. It's used within the liturgy services of various sort of traditional denominations right across the world. Because eleison is the word for mercy. Kyrie, Lord, Christe, Christ. But that's not what he prays. What the tax collector prays is hilastatoi moi. Now that word means be propitious to me. Make a propitiation for me. That's the literal translation of that word. Now, the reason why we don't use it in all of our modern translations is most people haven't got a clue what that means. But what does it mean? How can we understand it? What this guy is literally praying is he's saying, Lord, may the sacrifice for sin which has just been made, the lamb which has been slain now, for the forgiveness of sin, may that be for me. That's why we're sure this happens not in the context of just individual prayer, this prayer is offered up in the context of a service, the service that happens at sunrise and at sunset when the Lamb is sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And two people go to the temple to pray. One of them sees the sacrifice, sees the Lamb sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins and stands before God and says, God, I am good. And the other one is there in the same place, in the same setting, in the same temple, the same church, if you like, and he looks on the sacrifice which is made for the forgiveness of sins. He says, may that be for me. I need that. 
And Jesus then says, I tell you, the man who prayed like that made this sacrifice. He goes home having been justified before God, having been made right before God. You know, having now been in, if you like, put in good relationship with God. Not the other one who boasted of all the things he did, all the laws he kept, all the things he gave, and how super spiritual he is. He doesn't go home justified is the implication. Now, do you see why this is such a disturbing story for the original hearers? This is shocking. They're listening to Jesus speak, and they're saying, wait a minute, you're telling me the guy who's trying to keep the law, do the good things, he's generous with everything, he's trying to be all this spiritual stuff, he's not justified before God, but this tax collector whom we hate, who seems to have sold out, is forgiven? Now, why is this so important? Now, in the Middle East, where I come from, um, it's, not, it's very common to, well, to find you know, various imams or scholars come to this passage and say, look, you Christians don't understand your own gospel. You Christians think that Jesus Christ had to die in order for us to be forgiven. That isn't true. Doesn't the Bible teach in Luke 18 that if you come before God and you're sorry and you cry a little bit and say, please forgive me, God forgives you. In other words, humble yourself before God and he will forgive you and everything will be okay. And the answer is no. That's not what it means. This guy doesn't humble himself before God and make himself feel sad before God. And therefore, because he's made himself so sad and he's so miserable, God goes, oh, okay, I forgive you. This guy comes into the presence of God. He sees the lamb which is sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, that has to be for me. And he's forgiven. Now, there is humility in prayer taught in this parable, absolutely. But notice, it's not the guy makes himself feel humble and sorry, and therefore God feels him. Rather, he sees the provision which God has made for the forgiveness of sins. He is humbled by that, and he says, I need to receive it. Becoming a Christian is an inherently humbling thing. It's not accidentally humbling. It is inherently humbling. There is no room for boasting or arrogance in the Christian faith, none. This is why Paul in the book of Romans says, I can't boast in anything else except Jesus Christ and his cross. Why? Because God came into this world. It's because God loved us. It's because God gave himself for the cross. It's because God paid the price for us. It's because God took our sin onto himself. It's because God became sin for us. It's because God became a curse for us on the cross. It's because God paid the price for where we had failed. It's because God had raised, raised, risen from the dead and conquered over sin and death, and now God comes and offers us forgiveness as a gift, which we can freely receive. If you look on that and say, I need that, God, I need you to save me, I am lost, I am sorry, you will be forgiven. You will be justified before God, and it humbles you. Can you see that? It has to be humbling. You know, do you know how hard it is to say sorry? It's very hard, isn't it? You want to find out how hard just make detailed notes every single time you need to say sorry if you if you have a family to your wife or your children or to close friends and just keep a note of when you don't do it or when you find it hard it's very revealing it's an inherently humbling thing there is no room for arrogance in the christian faith it's just simply not there one of the earliest uh, descriptions we have of the Christian faith uh, comes from a document that dates back almost two millennia, not quite, 
a guy was asked to describe what these Christians are like and what they believe. And um, I remember the first time I read it, I was so, I was so struck by it. Now I've been forced to go on Twitter. I, I never wanted to go on Twitter, it was never my thing. For years I've avoided either doing YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook. I always used to joke that one day all those companies, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, will all merge together with one, one new website address, www.utwitface.com. <laughs> um, but I've done a couple of big youth rallies recently and they like to send in their questions and they wanted a Twitter hand handle for me to be able to tweet the questions to my Twitter handle and so we had to open one. And, so sometimes I read things and then I tweet them out. But here's one that, from a couple of months ago, from this ancient description of Christians. They marry and beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws of the land, and at the same time they surpass the laws by their very lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and then restored to life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet an abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and are yet justified. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. When punished they rejoice as if quickened into life. Those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Wow, that's incredible. As you sit here this morning, is it possible that you've always thought of the Christian faith as what you need to do for God? What you need to give, how you need to behave, how you need to act, what you need to do, but you've never received that mercy from him. You've never received that relationship and intimacy that comes and floods into your heart and life. When you look on the cross and you see the lamb that was slain for the forgiveness of sins and said, Lord, I need that, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That sacrifice, it needs to be for me. If you do this, you cannot help but fall in love with him. And when you've fallen in love with him, it's not about what you feel you have to do, it all comes about what you want to do. And there's an old apologist by the name of Edward Carnell. He was a very interesting theologian and he once posed a hypothetical question. He said, suppose a man comes to his wife and says, must I kiss you goodnight each night? How would she respond? Now, that's an interesting question. What he said is, she will look at him and say, unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of moral beauty. <laughs> now, personally, I think she'll just give him a slap. <laughs> but Carnell wrote that way because he was a theologian and a philosopher. What's she saying? She's saying, look, unless the reason you want to kiss me is, comes from the spontaneous affection you have for me, it doesn't mean anything. She's saying it is a must, but it's that, not that kind of must. That's the wrong kind of must. When you fall in love with someone, you want to be with them. You want to spend time with them. You want to be generous to them. You want to be a blessing. You want to you wanna be with them. You want to be like them. You, wanna, you just want it. When you receive 
there's forgiveness from God. It's not a question of all the things you have to do. It's about all the things you want to do. As he changes your heart and your desires. He's the one you want to be with more than anything else. So I must ask as you sit here this morning, is it possible that you've, you've lost sight of him? Is it possible that you once were in this intimate loving relationship and somehow it's just simply run cold? Look, the way to bring back the fire is not to psychologically stoke yourself up. That's not going to work. The way to stoke yourself up is to look and see how far you've moved away from him, how much he continues to love you, the length he's gone to rescue you, the fact that he desires you, the fact he's calling you here this morning, and realize that even though you may have been unfaithful and don't deserve it, he has remained faithful and loves you and is desperate for you to come back and is just waiting for you to say sorry and repent and come back to him. He's longing to see you. Is it even possible that you've never really thought about Christianity? as having this cross, this grace, right at the center of it. You've always thought Christianity was about maintaining a standard and just doing certain things, even if you don't like them, and the less you like them, the more noble it is. And you're thinking, and you're sitting here, and you're saying, yes, I, Jesus, I need to say yes to you today. If this is what Christianity is, if this is the gospel, then I need it in my own life. Well, if you're there, I'd just like to be able to pray, and we're going to close out our time together here with a prayer. And I'll just invite you just to bow your heads for a moment and just take a moment of reflection. If you have got your eyes closed, just put your hand on your wallet or your purse. We live in a wicked and depraved generation, and <laughs> if you're visiting here, you don't know who sat next to you. Let me ask you, as you are here today, do you need to say yes to him? If it's the case, it feels to you as if almost if God has reached out his hand and placed it on your heart. You know who Christ is. He's the son of God. You know why he came. He's brought this conviction into your life, but you see the hope that there is in the cross and you need to say yes to grace, yes to forgiveness. Lord, I need you. I'd love to be able to pray for you. Um, if you would like me to pray for you, just raise your hand where you're sat, just up high, and then I'll just know who I'm praying for and I will pray for you. If there's no one in that room, yep, okay, over to my, I can see over there. And then, yep, sure, over here. Anyone else? Yep. I can see that right at the back there too. Okay. So for those of you who know you're having to make this response, here's, here's what I'd love to ask. I want to pray with you. Yep, I can see sure at the back there and also in the middle here. I'd love to pray with you. Please don't leave here today without just talking with someone about what has happened. If you're visiting here, please just do fill out um, one of those cards on the form. Um, just tick you'd like to come to the, one of the newcomers' coffees and that you'd like to speak to someone. And either Tom Nelson, who's um, one of the senior pastors here, or someone else will get in contact with you. Um, we'd love to be able to just see where you are, see how, see how the church here can serve you and be a blessing to you and help you in your discipleship and walk with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come here this morning, Lord, acutely aware of who you are. Father, we want to thank you that even though you are the creator of this world, that you stepped in in the form of Jesus Christ and made yourself man. That you came into this world because you loved us and you gave yourself up to, to death, even death on a cross. We want to thank you that at that point 
you paid for our sin. Our sin became your sin as you became one with us and your goodness became ours. And we want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have forgiven us and made us whole. Father, we pray that you may be at the very center of our life. Lord, that we may follow you and pursue you, whatever it may cost, whatever demands you may make of us. Lord, we want to be like you. We want to become like you. Father, we want to be disciples who rejoice in being in your presence. Lord, we want to repent and say sorry, Lord, when we have been arrogant. Lord, when we have presumed upon you. Father, when we have claimed things which which are simply not true or we've acted in a way to others which are unworthy of the calling we have received, Lord, we are sorry for that. Lord, may our lives reflect your light and may be you be seen alive in us. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.